To reboot or not reboot? That is the question. With Hollywood seemingly bereft of original ideas, the bean counters in charge have decided that mining the back catalogue for our favourite childhood film shows, and to a lesser extent books, because I don't really believe anyone in Hollywood can read, in an effort to hit upon something that has recognisability and nostalgia, has hit an all-time high. Or low, depending on your point of view. At San Diego Comic Con, it was announced that Buffy the Vampire Slayer is being rebooted with a new Buffy and a new cast. And although creator Joss Whedon was mentioned as being an executive producer, do we honestly believe that's anything more than a nice paycheck for Whedon and a sop to the fans? Rebooting Buffy is silly. In addition to Buffy, are we using the same supporting cast? So will we get a new Angel, Giles, Xander and Willow? If not, how will this differ from the original? Rebooting Buffy is especially silly when one considers that there is an opening in the premise of the show for a continuation. Buffy established that Slayers had been fighting vampires, demons and the forces of darkness since the dawn of time, and that into every generation a Slayer is born. So why reboot? Simply have this take place now with a new Slayer being called. This gives us the best of both worlds, a recognisable concept, but not one that relies on competing with the original, and also allows for appearances by the original cast, should they decide to go that route. How cool would it have been to see this new Slayer meet Spike, as played by James Masters, who really is ageing inordinately well. Recent tweets from the new showrunner, Monica Breen, seem to imply that this may be the usual lazy reporting of the word reboot, and this may be more along the lines of a continuation. We'll just have to wait and see. Of course, the way to do a reboot correctly has been handled in two completely different ways, but both to great success. In 2005, Russell T. Davis brought back Doctor Who, and pulled off the incredibly difficult trick of changing everything, whilst changing nothing at all and he managed to make a worldwide hit out of it. Two years earlier, Ronald D. Moore revamped Battlestar Galactica, taking the premise and remaking the first half of the original TV movie, before going off in an incredibly dark and modern direction that still managed to be Battlestar Galactica, but slightly more adult. Whilst it didn't achieve the success of Doctor Who, it was a hit, and for a time, the hot show, being referenced in diverse places such as The Office, Veronica Mars and Gilmore Girls. These two examples are worth mentioning for being the two ways to approach a reboot. Make a continuation, but update it enough that it seems modern, but leaves all the earlier work alone to still tie in as when needed. Doctor Who or reimagine the project from the ground up, making a completely different show, but one that is still that show, but more modern and with better writing. Both can work, as seen in these two examples. Prior to this, the biggest successes in rebooting, or at least continuing a concept, was Star Trek. After a 10-year absence, Star Trek returned as a big-budget motion picture that successfully upgraded a television show into a successful movie series that ran for six films over a 12-year period. The concept was also updated for television, first with Star Trek The Next Generation, and then three other shows before Paramount Pictures had finally ground every last ounce of money they could out of Trekkie's pockets, and Star Trek sailed off into the ether for a good few years. Star Trek then went and got the Galactica treatment with an expensive, fully from the ground up reboot that recast the original Star Trek characters to mixed critical and fan success, but huge box office. The Star Trek model also lent itself to other properties with the X-Files graduating from TV to film and back again, albeit with the same actors, and Veronica Mars gaining a movie continuation thanks to the more recent trend of crowdfunding i.e. getting the fans to pay for your movie. So, to the point. Let's look at some of my favourite shows and see what the reboot potential is, or isn't, or should never be. Why this was percolating around, a couple of these have actually been announced, so we'll have to see how this goes. I would, for example, have included Buffy, but there doesn't seem any point now, it's happening. 
So first up, a show near and dear to me, and one that has just been announced as airing this autumn. Magnum P.I. For me, this would be the hardest of my favourite shows to reboot, simply because series star Tom Selleck is... Thomas Magnum. When the series was originally written and pitched, Selleck wasn't interested in the role, as it had a standard Glenn A. Larson lead, handsome, bland, wish-fulfillment. Selleck wanted Magnum to be more like Jim Rockford, a modest, flawed human being with a real identifiability factor for the audience. Selleck wanted men to see themselves in Magnum, would that we could all look like Tom Selleck, in that Magnum was a bit of a slob. He took advantage of his friends, he never had any money, yet had somehow looked into this situation where he had a nice house in Hawaii, a great car and a pretty decent lifestyle. But Magnum grew considerably over the years and by the end of the eight season run, we knew everything there was to know about him from where he went to school to his favourite ball team, his favourite author and his favourite film. We found out why he didn't celebrate July 4th like others did, preferring to spend the time in isolation and contemplation for his dead father. Magnum was a sunny guy, but there was a lot of depth to him. Crucially for this day and age, though, Magnum P.I. was about men. It was about male relationships, male drama, male bonding. The show explored Magnum and his friends and their time in Vietnam, and contrasted with the stiff upper lip attitude of token Brit Jonathan Higgins and his time in World War II. Masculinity was a huge part of the show, and, given the times in which we live, this clearly isn't going to fly in 2018. Now, this isn't me whining about how males are persecuted in 2018, because I don't really believe we are. Also, Starbucks reinvention as a woman was done for all the right reasons on Battlestar Galactica, and Katie Sackhoff made her a fully realised character. However, masculinity was such a huge part of the makeup of Magnum P.I., one of the few series on network television that didn't even have a woman as a regular cast member that any reboot that wasn't about that, a topic ripe for exploration in the 24th century, wouldn't be magnum. Take away Selick as well, and what's the point? Now, it's not that the show lacked a female viewpoint. One of the main writers on the show was Jerry Taylor, who later went on to co-create Star Trek Voyager, and certainly the audience, a very generous 50-50 mix of male and female, didn't seem to mind. Selleck may have been one of the most objectified actors on TV. But these themes were central to the show, and I can't help but think a reboot would miss the point and instead focus on what people remember about the show. The hunky lead, the Ferrari, the lush Hawaiian locations, and the action. Sadly, it seemed that we were all correct to worry. A trailer for CBS Television's new Magnum P.I. reboot urged to mixed opinion and focused on all of the superficialities and seemed to have none of the depth. And, of course, one of the characters was gender-swapped. In this version, Higgins is a woman. She's younger and sexier than John Hilleman, who originally played the part, and already seems to be on mostly friendly terms with Magnum, now played by Jay Hernandez. Now, the trailer looks fine. It's an all-action spectacular from Justin Lin, director of The Fast and the Furious and Star Trek Beyond, and the actors all look... okay. But I'm not sure it's Magnum. Higgins and Magnum's odd couple relationship, the laid-back Yank and the uptight Brit, was central to the show's appeal, and crucially, the writers never made Higgins Magnum's foil. Higgins won just as much as he lost in his battle of wits with Magnum, a character Higgins saw as a work-shy gadabout. Yet, over the series, they really came to care for each other. Higgins' background was quite tragic, and Magnum supported him and helped him. When Magnum was in a coma at the end of season 7, it was Higgins. Demanding Magnum return at once was what brought him around. It was one of the finest depictions of male friendship ever seen on US television, and it's just going to be lacking from the new one. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean the new show will be bad, but will it be Magnum? And how far do you have to change something before it isn't that thing anymore? Again, Galactica pulled it off. Can Magnum P.I.? We'll just have to wait and see. Next up is a show that has been oft-mooted for a revamp, but somehow has slipped through the cracks. Blake Seven. 
Blake 7 would actually be ripe for a 21st century reboot. The series is already dark and nihilistic, so would seem perfect for now, an era so scared of even having a sense of humour anymore that even Batman's partner says fuck whilst breaking bones and looking like he needs a shower. In fact, continuations or reboots of Blake 7 have been really close to happening before, in 2000, 2005, 2008, 2010 and 2012, but all of these projects fell through for one reason or another. Yeah, Blake 7 would be really easy to reboot. A continuation would be out of the question at this point, with all of the main cast being in the 60s and 70s nowadays, and Gareth Thomas, who played Blake, sadly no longer with us, so this would have to be a Ground Zero relaunch, and I think that would be the best way to go. I do wonder why Netflix hasn't been on this yet. Very little about Blake 7 would need to be altered for the reboot. Perhaps framing Blake for being a kiddie fiddler would be a bit much nowadays, but the premise of a totalitarian, although elected, government that people are rebelling against still works, as does the general apathy of the general populace, who simply don't care as long as they're okay. The characters were all pretty well-rounded, and there was nothing particular to their characters that means they all have to stay the same gender or ethnicity. Blake could easily be a woman, it would make no difference to the show. Likewise, Avon could be a person of colour, Villa could be gay, Jenna could be a man, and the show stays exactly the same, as long as the various characteristics of those characters are adhered to. Avon could still be a cynical and selfish computer genius, Villa still a cowardly thief, and Blake still a hopelessly naive idealist, and they could all do the same things they did originally, albeit gender or ethnically changed. I kind of think Serverland still has to be a woman, though. With modern special effects technology married to good scripts, a new Blake 7 could be a really good show. Hell, you could dig out Terry Nation's original scripts, update and tighten them up a bit, and you have the first couple of episodes all ready to go. Add all this up, and it would seem that Blake 7 is so obvious a candidate for a nostalgia fueled yet modern update, and frankly gobsmacked it hasn't happened yet. If we can be on our fourth incarnation of Charlie's Angels, we can bring back Blake 7. and Hutch has already had the movie treatment, whereby the producers took an old property and made a shitty comedy movie out of it. While Starsky and Hutch did have lighter moments, episodes like Satan's Witches are outright farces, the show was actually a serious drama, but the movie's producers must have missed episodes like Death in a Different Place or Bloodbath. And don't get me started on the characterisation and the casting. Owen Wilson may be a fine actor, but he's no Ken Hutchinson. And since when was David Starsky such an uptight prick? Nonetheless, the notion of bringing back Starsky and Hutch isn't a bad one. With Lethal Weapon imploding due to the behaviour of its lead actors, maybe the time is right for a new buddy cop drama series. Of course, Starsky and Hutch would be best to follow the Doctor Who route and be a continuation rather than a do-over. If the movie proved anything, it's that Paul Michael Glazer and David Soule are Starsky and Hutch. So the easiest thing to do here is pick it up 40 years later, on the day Ken Hutchinson, now the captain, retires and two new plainclothes detectives start, Starsky's son and Hutch's daughter. You could also keep Antonio Fargus around as Huggy Burr. This way, the door is open for appearances by Glazer and Soule, and we don't just ignore the old show, rather make it a part of the tapestry. Of course, the main issue would be the car. That 1976 Ford Torino with all its jacked-up special features, candy apple red colour scheme and white Nike stripe is the iconic image of the show. 
There's a reason the first thing the viewer saw at the beginning of every episode was the car. It told you straight away what you were watching. Now, people will tell you that having that car was rather silly for two undercover detectives, but A, they were plainclothes detectives, not undercover, as clearly spelt out in the pilot. Sure, they did undercover work, but that didn't normally involve the car. And B, the car was cool. It would need to be a newer model of car, but it definitely needs the same paint job. That's a deal breaker. As of last year, James Gunn was mooted as developing a new version of Starsky and Hutch for Amazon, and his unceremonious and knee-jerk firing from Guardians of the Galaxy 3 certainly frees him up to work on other projects, so let's hope that happens. Gunn certainly has the dramatic and comedic chops to make it work. Another deal-breaker, though, is Tom Scott's theme tune. Make it happen, Mr Gunn. Dollar Man is another show that seems to be forever trapped in development hell, although weirdly the spin-off, The Bionic Woman, did get a reboot that was crap. The problem with The Six Million Dollar Man though seems to be the title. Nowadays six million isn't what it was in the 70s, and the idea of rebuilding a man from scratch for a paltry six million dollars seems laughably quaint. This has led to many of the pitches for The Six Million Dollar Man to be of the same variety of Starsky and Hutch an ill-advised comedy that's liable to kill the brand quicker than a Ghostbusters remake. The off-rumoured Jim Curry version made me break out in hives. Which is a shame, as the original novel for The Six Million Dollar Man, Cyborg by Martin Caden, is crying out for a 21st century update. Colonel Steve Austin was a NASA astronaut, nearly killed in a shuttle crash. He was rebuilt better than he was before. Better, stronger, faster with state-of-the-art prosthetic limbs called bionics, which enable Steve to run at speeds in excess of 60 miles an hour, bend steel bars, and see over half a mile thanks to his new bionic legs, arm, and eye. With the advances in technology and a more thorough knowledge of the trauma associated with limb replacement, a new $6 million man could be a real crowd-pleaser, especially if you play it for real. No tongue-in-cheek send-up. It would be quite easy to update Colonel Austin to be a military officer hurt by an IED and rebuilt under orders of a far shadier Oscar Goldman. Making Goldman more of a country rather than the individual kind of guy, you could show some decent conflict between Steve and Goldman rather than the flat relationship of the show, and this could give Goldman some real character growth when he has to choose between Steve and country. Steve could also be more like Frankenstein, a man grateful to still be alive but wondering what is the cost to his soul. Let's be honest, the 70s show tried to do that in its first few episodes, but the conventions of 70s TV meant that this character development was significantly diluted from very early on. Oscar became the avuncular uncle, Steve the always right Superman, and the rightness of Steve's missions never questioned. 2018 isn't 1977, and the mission should have far more question marks to them. Of all the shows on this list, this one seems to me to be the real no-brainer as far as a remake goes. The show is still a part of the pop culture landscape, with the iconic sound effects still making appearances in games and films when a laugh is needed. A solid and gritty remake would be appropriate for this property, provided they remember to laugh at themselves every now and again. Kevin Smith wrote a film script that was adapted into a dynamite comic series, which showed he had a good grasp on the character and the approach any filmic update should take, but sadly this was passed over. Current rumours are that Marky Mark Wahlberg is to take the lead role in The Six Billion Dollar Man, a summer tentpole picture scheduled for 2020. Again, we'll have to take a wait-and-see approach to that as well.
Now, I've made no secrets about how much I love 80s action fest Erwolf, as mad a show as was ever commissioned by a major television network. I mean, look at the litany of crazy baked into the show's DNA. The central feature is a wolf in sheep's clothing helicopter that goes from looking like a traditional chopper to an arm-to-the-teeth badass at the flick of a switch. The lady, as she's nicknamed, can disengage the rotors to arm turbos to make the machine fly faster than Mach 1.5. The chopper is stolen from the US government by their own operative, the wonderfully named Stringfellow Hawk, who blackmails the head of a super-secret CIA offshoot into finding his MIA in Vietnam brother, Sinjin. Erwolf is hidden in a hollowed-out mountain in the middle of the desert, where Hawk and his best mate and father figure, the equally remarkably named Dominic Santini, fly the super vehicle on top-secret missions of national concern that seem to involve just blowing a lot of shit up. And people accuse comic books of being over the top. All of this bombast was perfectly suited to the 80s, where this kind of thing was business as usual, but nowadays a slightly more refined palette would be required. And that is why I just don't think you should touch it. Erwolf is so wonderfully of its time, the batshit crazy nature of it all being accepted by the audience, that any remake would be bound to try and explain how all of this worked. Now, sure, of all the 80s action fests, Erwolf was by far the one that took itself the most seriously, but arguably that's because there's a lot of stuff here that the audience was just being asked to accept with no questions asked. Questions that modern writers would feel the need to answer. Questions like, if the firm were providing Hawk with ammunition and fuel, did no one ever ask where these resources were going? If they really wanted Erwolf back, why not just cut off that supply chain? Or better yet, why not just arrest Hawk and Santini for treason and chuck them in a hole so dark they'd never get out? Who designed all the natty flight suits? See what I mean? Questions. Loads of questions. Ignoring all this, the premise screams 80s, with discussions of the fates of MIA soldiers in Nam, the resultant feeling of isolation and abandonment that led to Hart becoming a recluse, and the very might-makes-right nature of Erwolf herself. It's difficult not to imagine a modern writer not deconstructing all this, rather than just having fun with it. Hawk's character would also cause modern writers to have a fit. Here was a sensitive, reclusive, animal-loving vegetarian whose answer to Moe's problem was to go biblical on his enemy's ass and blow them out of the sky. It's amazing how many of the world's problems could be solved with a top-secret military helicopter just unloading its incredibly impressive arsenal on its targets. Erwolf is simply magnificent, and for that reason, leave it the fuck alone. Anderson's UFO and Space 1999 must have been on somebody's radar for a reboot at some point. I know that Ronald D. Moore, who updated Galactica, was asked if there's any other project he'd like to reboot, and without hesitation he said Space 1999, so it's out there as an idea. The thing with that, though, is that Space 1999 is so magnificently 70s, even more so than Buck Rogers, that any reboot would instantly lose the retro charm. Space 1999's look is all beige, browns and fleurs. It's like man froze all sense of design and fashion in 1974, as if to say, well, this is it, guys, we're never going to get any better than this, and just simply gave up. The flip side of the costumes and designs for Moonbase Alpha are the Eagle spaceships, which genuinely look like NASA spaceships even today, that you would once again lose some of the aesthetic of the show by redesigning them. Of course, Moore was smart enough to keep the Galactica's Vipers looking pretty much the same, so maybe he'd keep the Eagles. Story-wise, there'd be no getting around 1999's premise, which made very little sense in 1974, and makes even less sense now. Add that to 1999's habit of telling esoteric stories with Man Was Not Meant To Know endings, and you're kind of running into a dead end with Space 1999. UFO, however, is ripe for a reboot. The stealth invasion of Earth by Johnny Alien, stealing our people for organs, can be used as a metaphor for any of today's ills, from trafficking to immigration to our constant distrust of the other, which hasn't changed since Twilight Zone did episodes about it over 60 years ago. 
The idea of the whole world working together is as far-fetched as it ever was. But all that stuff about movie studios acting as covers or a super-secret organisation of world protectors is wonderful stuff, easily dusted off and updated for a modern market. Ed Straker is the kind of ball-breaking badass who was light-years ahead of his time in 1970, so would still be a compelling character today. Hell, with the current concerns about security and free movement, UFO is more relevant than it ever was. UFO needs to come back. It's the science fiction show we need right now. development as movie studios try to wring every last ounce of worth out of any project that they may own. Hawaii Five-0 has been successful on TV, whilst Mission Impossible has reached its sixth film in the series, although movie versions of The A-Team, Dukes of Hazard, and SWAT seem to crash and burn. Star Trek is back, as is Star Wars. She-Ra is even returning to our screens. Hell, even ALF is coming back. 24 tried a season without Kiefer Sutherland, but that didn't seem to work. Other properties like The Prisoner are so representative of the time they were made, or the people that made them, that any revival seems doomed to failure. Roseanne returned and then went away again as people remembered how awful Roseanne Barr was, but now Kelsey Grammer is talking up a continuation of Frasier, which, if it happens, I hope doesn't spoil the memory of the original. And therein lies the rub. A reboot can be ignored easily. The original is still there, trapped in amber for all eternity. A continuation runs the risk of spoiling the memory of the original. Some end up being completely different. Denzel Washington may make a fine stab at being the equaliser, but he isn't the equaliser. Not everything needs to come back. Some things are better off left behind in the past, where they belong. Can I get a tall chai? A large black coffee. And I suppose you are here with no agenda, as per usual? On the contrary, I'm here for comics. I think I can help all of you. Hello, I'm the caffeinated Clinton Robison, and I host a podcast called Coffee and Comics. On this podcast, I summarize, review, and discuss comic book issues, stories, and related media, usually in the span of time it takes to have a cup of coffee. Sometimes I'm joined by a guest, and sometimes I'm flying solo. So pour the coffee, take a sip, and turn up the volume as you listen to the Coffee and Comics Podcast. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, and directly on coffeeandcomicspodcast.blogspot.com. And remember, this is where the comics are never too old and the coffee is never too cold. to delve once more into the various feedbackings that I've had. Um, I've started, only very briefly, to try and keep a track of uh, Facebook and Twitter and other such feedbacks. Because people do occasionally send you feedback, though, don't they, on Twitter and, and what have you. And I had one on Twitter uh, from Ben Grimm, a.k.a. the mighty ever-loving blue-eyed thing, who in actuality is Mike Brown, who we've uh, talked to a few times before because of uh, the Fantasticast. And uh, he said he couldn't really believe that the BBC of that period would go for uh, paedophilia with regard to Blake's discrediting. But yeah, there they go. Yeah, it's it's there. That's what they did. Uh, like they say in the show, they didn't really think that they could kill him because he'd just create a martyr of him. So they went for the ultimate discrediting that they could do. And I think the show got away from being, um, got away with being as dark as it could, or as, as dark as it did, because it, it looked like, you know, a cheap and cheerful science fiction series, and, uh, 
it seemed quite odd that, that they could go so dark with it, but but they did. So, you know. Elsewhere on Facebook, uh, Ruth and Darren Sutherland both commented on how much they enjoyed the Blake 7 era and the, the background that we provided, uh, I provided on the show. Um, Ruth said that the, the first two series were the best, but the Series 3 and 4 are worth watching, which I agree with. I agree entirely with that. I don't think that there's nothing wrong with Series 3 and 4. They may not be as focused or as, as good. The series' apex, if you will, is at the end of, of Series 2. But Series 3 and 4 are well worth watching. And the, just the, the sheer downbeat ending um, with with the final episode, Blake, it's it's well worth well worth checking out. Jason Trenner then emailed in uh, greetings. That was an interesting trip through Blake Seven and Captain Scarlet's remake. Two shows that sound uh, fun to watch, though I have to say, for how CG ages, it ages like bread. It doesn't take long to go bad and look unappealing. That's very true. Um, you know, and I've watched a few more episodes since then. The show's fun. Don't get me wrong. It's 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 an enjoyable show. The new Captain Scarlet. I just, you know, if it had been traditionally animated, like a Ben 10 kind of thing, with just some animation helping out every now and again, I think it would have would have held up better. And we'll just have to see how, how Clone Wars holds up over time, won't we? Nathaniel Wayne has emailed in with a, a lot of email about um, catching up with the palace, so let's delve into that, should we? Hi, Andy. Firstly, because I'll probably forget as I get going, I wanted to just say how genuinely heartwarming your sign-off of it's all going to be all right has been lately. It's a sentiment that's hard to hold sometimes, but here you say it in your lovely voice gets me a little boost. Gives me a little boost. It may be an odd comparison, but it makes me feel similarly to how I did whenever I'd say goodbye to my grandfather and he'd tell me to keep smiling. And I always would, because I couldn't help it. Well, I think, thank you, first of all. Uh, I do think, I think it's something we just need to hear a bit more of uh, nowadays. It seems like there's an awful lot of people prophesizing doom and gloom. And, you know, there are certain instances where they have reason to be doing that, depending on where you live politically. Um, but I honestly, I do. I honestly think everything's going to be okay. I mean, we may have to fight for some things, but you know, nothing wrong with that. Just because we read comics, don't mean we can't start some. Anyway, playing catch up continues, Nathaniel. Well, pretty much everything. I've somehow stumbled into producing daily videos on the Council of Geeks YouTube channel. Best to get the plug in there early, while still working a full time job, raising a kid, having a relationship, and what some might call consider a social life. Raising a kid, having a relationship, and what some might even consider a social life. Your show is the ones I've fallen furthest behind on, so I'll probably end up touching a couple of episodes here. Well, they're only 45 minutes at most! I try and keep them so they're the perfect length for people going, or coming back from work, or when they're in the gym, or, or whatever. But, you know, at least they're not four hours long. I have the vaguest memories of the Spider-Man live-action show, but only of Spidey climbing up a wall and, I think, the side of a building. And maybe being gassed. These are from summers at my grandparents where I ended up getting a fair number of shows by Osmosis because they were things my grandfather watched. Wow, I hadn't planned to have him be a running theme here, but there you go. This was how I absorbed shows like MASH, Cheers, Seinfeld, Friends and even Star Trek The Next Generation. The only one of my grandfather's shows I'd actually sit down to watch with him start to finish. I think the Spider-Man bits fell into this category as well, but it's hard to say now. Well, your grandfather sounds cool to me. Moving along, I haven't personally read the Wolfman run on Spider-Man, so I can't say whether you're off on your assessment or not. But to your questions why these would be collected despite middling quality, I have a theory that it's a demon, a dancing demon. No, something isn't right here. In the ongoing effort to find a way to resell stuff, I suspect pretty much any top-tier character who had a writer with some clout work on them is at least considered for masterworks or reprints or collections or whatever. So I don't think that it's because they're great stories, but because Wolfman is a known name among the kind of people liable to be buying this kind of collection. It's the same principle that as DC continue to allow Frank Miller to come anywhere near Batman, despite the genuine damage his last few goes at the character have done, or rather would have done if anybody had taken them seriously. Have you heard the news about the Lethal Weapon show? Playing Crawford was apparently a nightmare to work with, and his abusive behaviour towards cast and crew got so bad he was fired off the show. 
I don't know a ton of specifics, but among other things, an assistant director quit on the spot over Crawford's profanity-laden demands that they shut up kids at a public pool that they were shooting a scene at, and Crawford called Wayans a crybaby who was only in the business because of his family's name after Wayans was injured in a stunt during an episode Crawford directed. The third season is still happening with Sean William Scott, a fairly limited actor who I have a soft spot for all the same, similar to how I feel about Matthew Lillard, coming in as an entirely new character. As you're the only guy who watches it, I'd be more than a little interested to hear your thoughts. Oh, well, Nathaniel, where to begin with that whole Farago? Um, yeah, Crawford, it's, it was leaked to the media that Crawford had been reprimanded a couple of times during the second season of Lethal Weapon. He issued what Damon Wayans called a non-apology for his actions. Um, and then it just spiralled from there. It was one of the ugliest firings of a cast member I think I've ever seen. People came out on both sides of the argument. Um, Haley Burton, who portrayed his lover in the show, DIA agent Palmer, came out firmly in support of Crawford, saying he was one of the best scene partners she'd ever had. Michelle Michendor, who played um, Bailey on the show, however, came out on the other side saying she'd had a fairly a few fairly heated conversations with him. Damon Wayans vacillated wildly um, from launching a, a pretty horrendous Twitter attack on his co-star to then backing off when it looked like oh, maybe he's not going to be fired after all, to then doubling down on his position that Crawford was to blame for everything. There was then um, an in-depth article um, oh god, I wish I'd bootmarked it. I can't remember where it was. Um, a reporter for one of the major entertainment news sites did a, an expose. Um, it may have been Variety or E Online or something like that, but they presented a little bit more of a balanced viewpoint where they interviewed apparently for 31 people. Uh, I've just looked it up. It was on Variety. They interviewed 31 people who spoke anonymously with cast and crew members on set. And neither one of them, Wayans or Crawford, comes out of this particularly well, in my opinion. It certainly seems that, that Wayans certainly has a, a diva-esque attitude that could possibly rub people the wrong way and a quote that was attributed to Crawford where he apparently wished the show would get cancelled was actually said by Wayans that was a, a misreport apparently but um, by all accounts it was ugly and a lot of people have maintained silence some people on Twitter have expressed the dissatisfaction with, uh, with Crawford being fired other people have said you know, probably in the interest of keeping the jobs, they've not said anything, which is probably the smartest route to go. Subsequently, Crawford has maintained a dignified silence, only retweeting messages of support, whereas Wayans, like I said, went on a, a Twitter fest. There was audio released of the two incidents that you mentioned, of Crawford complaining about the, um, the noise while they were filming a scene, a video, and then there was an audio of Crawford and Wayans apparently having an argument where Crawford was just needling Wayans. It um, it did not sound like a, a pleasant working environment. And if they had to fire Crawford to keep the show on, then that is a pretty drastic stance for any television show to take. You know, as a rule, these these if the show is successful and making money the production company will go out of their way to protect the actors um, in whatever way they can. And it does seem to be, in many ways, Crawford and Wayans just were not clicking. There are reports on both sides of them both being quite objectionable to work with, although apparently as soon as you yell action, Crawford, sorry, Wayans is the picture of professionalism. Uh, and obviously this is one of those things where uh, it was probably handled incredibly badly by both Warner Brothers and the Fox Network, who did absolutely no damage control on this at all. There has still been no official statement 
on Clayne Crawford leaving the show and being replaced. It's only at the upfronts, I believe, it was mentioned, and the 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 new picture for Lethal Weapon was just Damon Wayans. No, Clayne Crawford was nowhere to be seen. Uh, it's 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 all been quite ugly and handled incredibly badly. And like I say, there must be something to the complaints for the production company to fire him. You know, we we've heard any number of stories of actors behaving badly that have been protected because of the show. Um, recently, this seems to have finally been brought a halt. I believe somebody was fired off. Um, was it one of the NCIS shows or Criminal Minds or something? I don't watch it, so I don't know. For his bad behaviour, I think it was, was was it's a guy who was was he the guy who was in Will and Grace? So they they finally seem to be having a zero tolerance on actors being allowed to behave like assholes. Just speaking purely from my point of view as a viewer, I think it scuppered the show. I honestly do. Whatever the behind the scenes situation on screen, the writers and Crawford have done an exceptional job with portraying Martin Riggs as a man suffering from a, a severe depression. And him, his slow recovery from that and his occasional falls back into it and his death wish, all of which I think has been explored far better than the films ever did in a far more sensitive and humane manner, as well as shaving off some of the loose edges of Riggs's character. If you go back and watch the first Lethal Weapon movie, which I did very recently, Mel Gibson's Martin Riggs is a horrible homophobe, not once but twice in that movie. One of those instances could be written off as a joke between two male buddies, but he, he earlier on he refers to two lesbians being in bed together as disgusting. So they, they've they've shaved those elements off Riggs, and I think Crawford did a much better job of exploring the character. I think on screen, him and Wayans worked really, really well together, although in light of this, it was very difficult to watch and not see how much they were splitting them up in the later episodes of season two, and then there's some lines of dialogue. Riggs has a line in the final episode of season two that runs something like, apparently my down-home southern charm doesn't rub off too well up here in LA, which is kind of hard to believe that the writers haven't thrown that in directly. He also has another line in the final episode. Is anyone else here who wants to kill me? Again, it's kind of hard to imagine the writers haven't thrown that in deliberately. He's removed all mention of Lethal Weapon from his Twitter feed, and we'll see how it goes. But like I say, for me as a viewer, I think it's scuppered the show. Martin Riggs is the Lethal Weapon. And bringing in a new character, it's going to be interesting to see how they do it. I do know a number of people who I watch it with. It was mine and my wife's favourite show to watch together. She loved Lethal Weapon, and she's very much of the opinion, I don't want to watch it anymore. Martin Riggs was the lethal weapon, I'm not interested. And there are other people I know, friends of mine who watch the show, who are like, I don't really want to watch it without him. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I'm interested from purely from the standpoint of seeing how they do it and if they pull it off. Because in the history of television, replacing a lead actor in this way I don't think has ever worked. You know, Coy and Vance were brought in to replace Bo and Luke in The Dukes of Hazard when John Schneider and Tom Wopak quit over uh, royalty payments that they weren't receiving, and obviously Battlestar Galactica came back with Troy and Dylan instead of Apollo and Starbuck, and that didn't work. Um, the more tragic circumstance of Pete Duell being replaced in Alias Smith and Jones after his suicide. I think you can argue a case that that was never as good again. Ben Murphy's chemistry with with the replacement was never as good as his, his chemistry with, with Pete Duell. And it's one of the, the, the producers said 98% of the show that you still loved is still in place. But that was the case with other shows. Alias Smith & Jones, again, is the other example I would use because that was one of my favourite shows. The writers were all the same. The sets, production crew were all the same. Continuity was the same. They would make references to adventures that Pete Dool's Hannibal Hayes had. Now just substitute with another actor. But the show just was not as good without those two in it. And I think there's other instances where have they replaced an actor in a drama series like this before and pulled it off? Like I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, Blake Seven ran two of its four years without Blake and managed to pull it off. But they crucially, they didn't replace Blake. They made Blake's disappearance from the show a part of the show. And they never replaced him with a similar character. And I think that's possibly one way to go. But Lethal Weapon needs a Lethal Weapon. So if you're going to bring in another character that's the same as Riggs, 
slightly off kilter, slightly bizarre. I mean, for me, I would retool the show completely at this juncture. Um, the final episodes of the season saw Murtaugh being promoted to captain. I would shuffle Damon Wayans off into that role as the captain. And I would bring in a new police officer and a new part or partner him up with Bailey, who's already on the show and established, and partner him up with her and just bring a completely new dynamic to the show and not have Lethal Weapon be Riggs and Murtaugh at all. I think having it be another guy and Murtaugh is only going to highlight the rig-shaped hole in the show. But we'll see. We'll see if they pull it off. Uh, obviously, we, we'll only know that when the new series season starts. It has, I thought, crucially been only been picked up for a 13-episode season. It's not been given a full season order yet. Whether or not it makes it through those 13 episodes or whether it turns into a big success, we'll just have to wait and see at the moment. But like I said, I don't think either one of them came out of it smelling of roses, but I certainly think that if Crawford was behaving in such a manner that got him fired, then it must have been very serious. That's not a decision a television production company would take lightly to fire its lead actor. Now, they were very lucky in that the storyline that they'd plotted through the end of season two ended in such a way that they could write rigs out there. Um, and one of the writers has said, had they carried on into a third season with Riggs, he would have recovered from what happens to him at the end of season two, but then he would have been addicted to painkillers, and that would have been the next thing that he would have had an addiction with, because he's a very addictive personality. But obviously, I think what's going to happen now is Riggs is going to die as a result of what happened in the final episode, and then Sean William Scott's character is going to come in and they'll go from there. So, again, we'll just have to see what happens. It was very fascinating in a train wreck kind of way to watch it though because it was it was textbook how not to handle these things i thought i think warner brothers did a terrible job of handling it so and ultimately the responsibility for that falls upon the executive producers so you know uh, Nathaniel continues, I was just listening to your episode on Lost in Space. I didn't realise there'd been that many failed attempts to revive it. So that was interesting to hear about the approaches that didn't get picked up. I only ever saw one, maybe two full episodes of the show. It's one of the things Nickelodeon used to play way back when it was a mix of kid shows and old stuff that they could run cheaply. Also how I first saw Get Smart. As a kid who grew up on Star Wars, I was never really able to get over the cheapness of the look. I had the same issue with classic Star Trek, which is why I stuck to the movies and Next Generation in my younger years. I have to admit to having a bit of a soft spot for the 90s movies. It's not good, but for some reason I enjoy it all the same. Sometimes I know why I like something that isn't actually that great by any objective measure, but not here. It's just one of those things that, back late, before I cut the cord, I'd always stop on if I was channel surfing and came across it. See, a lot of people said that to me, and a lot of people have tried to defend the love of Lost in Space of it being a good film, and it isn't. I don't mind you liking it. There's the thing. I like a lot of stuff that is objectively shit, but I like it knowing that it's objectively shit, and I just like it anyway. And there's nothing wrong with that. We do live in an era where it, it seems like you, you feel the need to defend what you like on some kind of artistic merit level, and yet you can like stuff that is objectively bad. I, I love Buck Rogers in the 25th century, but I'm not under any illusions that it's a good show, because it isn't. I may have to cover that again just to get into the, the depths of how terrible that show is, even though I thoroughly enjoy watching it. The new Lost in Space, continues Nathaniel, has been difficult for me to get into. The first two episodes especially really didn't work for me. My main thing is finding very little to like in the characters of Maureen and John. I wouldn't go as far as to say they're badly written, but I find them bland and engaging, and to be blunt about it, they're not especially good parents, and are not in a way that I feel that adds to the dynamic of the family, rather just dragging on it. I don't like how quickly they encountered other colonists. I feel like the show lost the sense of isolation way too quickly and on too big a scale, given how many other people were suddenly milling around. Thankfully, the kids are solid, Don is charming, and the robot is neat. The highlight, though, is undoubtedly Parker Posey, who does a magnificent job of selling the manipulative gaslighting that the character engages in. As a result, she's the most believable incarnation of Dr. Smith, since the question of, wait, why don't they lock that guy up all the time? I was kind of hung over the earlier versions. 
I've still got a few episodes to go, but it's a solid enough show that I plan to finish the season. It just hasn't grabbed me enough to pull me away from binges of Legends of Tomorrow and The Good Place. And free time is scarce with my current output of a new video every day on the Council of Geeks YouTube channel. Boom! Masterful plug insertion. Uh, yeah, John and Maureen were probably the most problematic characters. And I think some of that can, you can read into it that they've been thrust together into this adventure where they're, they're obviously going through a breakup and they're not really getting on with each other and perhaps aren't focusing on the children as much as they did. I personally believe that throughout the run of the show, John does come into his own a lot, as he clearly is being portrayed as a man who knows he's made an almighty cock up and he's very desperately trying to get back into the good graces of Maureen, if only to see his children on a more regular basis. Um, not necessarily to get back together with her, although as the show goes on, that does happen. And I think they do both become more sympathetic and more likeable as the show goes on. But certainly, yes, in the first two or three episodes, they are the biggest hurdle to get over. I loved all the kids. I thought all of the kids were great. Like you say, Parker Posey was brilliant. Um, the, yeah, I don't know if you've got to the end of the show yet, so this could be considered a minor spoiler. But the first ten episodes of that show, the first entire season of that show, is essentially the pilot which is one of the problems I have with it. It's the they're only really lost in space at the end of the final episode of the first season. So I think you're going to get more of what lost in space is in the second season. Um, and, you know, you can you can like or dislike that, I suppose. I mean, it's, it's a creative choice that they made, perhaps to get used to the characters a little bit more, to develop the characters a little bit more, to show that they're both good leaders um when put up against people who were perhaps not as good a leader but certainly it looks like the second season is going to be more traditional lost in space anyway thank you nathaniel for those they were very good i enjoyed them i always enjoy your emails i enjoy emails from everybody if you want to email me in hey kids comics at virginmedia.com is uh is what well, you would email me as always the palace of glittering delights is a two true freaks presentation proud member of the network go on over there click on the link to the amazon the the amazon and if you buy your shit through the embarrassing stuff like you know gimp masks and butt plugs if you want to buy those through there we we don't see what you buy honest but we get a kickback we do see what you buy we get a kickback and uh, we don't i don't i don't know what you buy i don't care to be honest with you buy what you want it's 2018 be who you want to be um yeah uh i've lost my train of thought the thought of people buying butt plugs uh, if you want to click through the link and go through the... <laughs> sorry i just amused myself uh, click that we get a kickback helps me make more drivel like this which i hope you enjoy thank you for listening thank you for emailing thank you for all that crap i really do appreciate you listening to this drivel and remember everything is gonna be all right see you next time Bye bye